This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Movement Sports founder, Simon Turner. He discusses his coach development work and how providing structure with this can help athlete development, why he places such an importance on welfare and how this can be identified and managed in a club context, as well as some of the challenges that can be faced at the elite level due to the narratives that are portrayed. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Simon, um, obviously chatted a little bit briefly then. Glad to hear you're a little bit better from last week. Um, how are things? Are you busy at work, etc. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, very busy. It's the beginning of the winter season, isn't it? So, yeah, lots of sports organizations really kind of kicking into gear. A bit of a rude awakening if you've had some time off as well. So, yeah, it's busy times. Perfect. So obviously Alan Keane, one of our recent uh, guests, put us in contact and said that you've been an interesting person to talk talk to. I think with a variety of roles and different projects you've got going on. So uh, for people that haven't maybe come across your work previously, do you just want to give a bit of an overview of what you currently do and how that affects and what the plans are moving forward for you guys? Sure. So maybe I'm different from some of the other guests you've you've had. I'm I'm a basketball coach turned social entrepreneur. So I specialize in the use of sport as a tool for social change, uh, which brings with it uh, a range of different new approaches to how we deliver and plan um, sport. And in particular, I got a passion for the role that coaches can play in communities and the role that coaches uh, have across the globe, really. Uh, in uh, affecting change uh, if we're deliberate and intentional about it. Uh, so you might hear from my dodgy accent, apologies. Uh, I'm from New Zealand originally, uh, been in the UK for uh, too long, <laughs> many years, since 18 years. Uh, and I started a, a charity around 10 years ago in, in Edinburgh, uh, in Scotland, that took over a disused community sports centre that had been shut down for a year. It had lost money under two different operators and the council was threatening to turn it into student flats and sell it off. Uh, so I led a process with a bunch of volunteers and community groups to take it over. Uh, and we turned a failing facility into a you know, thriving social enterprise. Um, basketball's our, our primary sport. There's a range of different other uh, activities as well. So along the way, I've developed some methodologies and some ways of achieving both sporting results and social outcomes uh, and doing that in a financially sustainable way. So if you imagine a Venn diagram of three circles, you've got a sport circle, you've got an impact circle, uh, and you've got a sustainability circle. Well, I operate at the at the center of that Venn diagram, the intersection of those three circles. So I'm really trying to bust the myth that achieving sporting results, whether it be performance or participation, and achieving social change or outcomes, those, those things aren't mutually exclusive. We can do both of those. And it's the coach that's the, the center of that and the most important player in, in all of that. And we can do that in a way that's financially sustainable as well. So that's me. It's perfect. So I guess the first question off the back of that is is how? How how can we 
effect to the wider community whilst also getting performance-based results? What would be the starting point for you? The starting point is being intentional and deliberate. That might sound quite simple, but in sport, what I've observed uh, over many years now is that we tend to treat uh, impact on people and communities as a as a byproduct of what we do. So we coach great sport, we get lots of people playing, or we improve performance. Oh, and that also will increase the confidence of the people involved, or that also will give young people something to do and make sure they're not getting in trouble, or that also will bring people together and, and form connections across different boundaries. Uh, but if we flip that around and place some of those outcomes at the center of what we do and treat performance and participation as a byproduct of those things, then actually we can achieve both. So practical example would be uh, well-being. We can improve the mental well-being of the people who take part in our sport via our particular coaching methodologies. And I probably don't need to tell you that a player with good mental well-being is likely to become more confident, more committed, better decision maker on the field or the court, and ultimately actually lead to better performance. So there are definitely ways of combining those two together. Mental well-being is probably one of the most high-profile examples at the moment. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting one after the Olympics with Simone Biles, etc. And um, what I think has been really interesting for me over the last week or so is seeing the discussion around um I, i'm gonna butcher the last name it emma radicanu who won the us mm -hmm. open and it's interesting some are going down the line of she could be the next serena williams etc and others are taking a more reserved approach of saying well actually she was sitting her a levels three months ago maybe it's a really good opportunity for her just to get some support frameworks put in place and allow her to kind of mature into a young woman rather than just focusing on the fact that she's had a really good US Open. Um, and I guess for you, when you t you discuss and you look at well-being, what are the some of the key factors you look at that and what frameworks do you look to put in place to encourage well-being within sport? Well, the first thing we've got to do is recognise that well-being is influenced by a range of different factors. And actually in times in sport, we can overestimate what, what we can do in terms of mental well-being particularly for those participants who are maybe only with us one or two or three times a week for somebody in full time in an academy for example then okay yeah now we can have a much bigger impact on the well-being um but well we, we also don't define well-being very often in sport i think we sort of throw it around very often so definition we use is that people feel like they've got the resources and the capabilities to uh, navigate their way through the through the challenges that they face. So, do they have the resources and the capabilities to uh, to negotiate and, and navigate some of the issues that they're facing? And it's when that balance is tilted and they don't have the resources or the capabilities to manage uh, what's in their environment. That's when the well-being starts um, to suffer. So, if you think of well-being as a maths equation, it actually starts to unpick it a little bit. Uh, rather than being this kind of nebulous term um, that we throw around. Uh, I think it's also really closely connected to identity, and that's the the challenge uh, that I'm really interested to see with uh, with Emma, is how 
is her identity going to change? Does she think of herself as only a tennis player? And I don't need to tell you this in football, there's so many academy products whose identity is wrapped up in being a football player, and then they don't make it, and let's face it, that most of them don't make it, or whatever making it is, at least in their minds, they don't make it. Uh, but because their identity is, I'm a footballer, they don't make it, then it's not just they haven't made the team or haven't been offered a contract. Their whole identity has been rejected. I like that's That's scary. So I think we've got a role as coaches to support the entire person, to think of them as more than just, if we think of them as just an athlete, is it any wonder that they think of themselves as just an athlete? So uh, I'm really interested in that kind of intersection between well-being and identity. I'd love to hear what you think of that with some of the young people you work with in a football academy. Well, what's interesting, and I've said this before on the podcast, my dissertation from university actually touched on this and the loss of identity. Um, and one of my friends um, openly said that he hated Saturdays because uh, Saturdays was football day and he couldn't play because he was injured. Um, he had a serious knee injury and he was, had some challenges around that. And when you look back on it as a little bit older, etc., that's quite a sad statement to say that actually you hate one day of a week every week because of something that you've grown up doing um i think it's, it's a definitely an interesting point i guess the challenge for me and I, this is a narrative thing is if you look at some of the most successful athletes yeah cristiano ronaldo your kobe bryant etc michael jordan's a lot of the narrative around those individuals is how driven they are to be exceptional or how driven they are to succeed and how that's their sole focus and they've sacrificed other bits of their life. So how do you, I guess, how do you manage that? How do you manage the well-being side of an individual or an athlete maybe looking a little bit older compared to understanding that actually sometimes to succeed in that sport, it will take ultra levels of, you know, competitiveness of of you know drive and all that type of stuff yeah well realistically uh a balanced uh ethically driven person in a coaching role if they're looking at that situation and saying in order for these participants to reach the level they want to they have to become complete and utter egomaniacs then I think that person would have trouble sleep. I think that coach would have trouble sleeping at night. And so part of, I think, the discussion amongst coaches needs to be when we're part of the problem and when to recognize that actually we're going too far here. Like sport occasionally, well, some would say often, goes too far with these issues. So connected to the narrative, if we're telling stories about these complete and utter egomaniacs, like people who are just ruin relationships all around them, and we're holding these people up as our role models, then we're going to perpetuate the problem. Uh, but part of that narrative and that storytelling is based on survivor bias. So it's, it's just these people have survived the sporting system because of, like, they've had to become that in order to survive the sporting system, I would argue. Uh, and yet we don't tell stories about the really balanced athlete. And there are many, many of those people, somebody who's got a life outside of 
of their sport, but that's not quite as interesting. It's not it's not such a compelling narrative. So part of our role, I think, is is being selective about who we reinforce to to young participants, who we talk about. You know, do we talk about Kobe Bryant to use a basketball analogy, or uh, do we talk about LeBron James, who's equally as driven, but is putting his money into a into a school? He's got his own school. <laughs> um, is at the forefront of social justice issues. Uh, and was told by Fox News to shut up and dribble and responded to that by saying, you know, I'm more than an athlete. No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm allowed to have an opinion here that's worthy. So we, as coaches, we can choose which, what stories we want to tell. Uh, and I think that's, that's pretty important for us going forward because there's so many people are just held up as <laughs> great examples, but they're, they're one in a million, not, not one in a million in terms of talent, or well, probably are that, but they're one in a million in terms of. Well, I'm trying not to swear on your podcast, Michael, but you know, <laughs> one of like, I would not want to be a friend, a sibling, a partner to some of these people because sport at the top level seems to create some people that aren't healthy. Let's just say. Yeah, I think the Last Dance documentary definitely highlighted that with Michael Jordan. Say the results he got. You know, can't deny those. But I think if you look at the challenges he faced in and around that with relationships that he had both on and off the court, it did did provide some issues. So if we're looking at kind of a culture of well-being at a club, what would you Mm. say the process is to try and integrate that into everyone's thinking? What what kind of steps and foundations would you put in place moving through the club? So. Uh, first of all, we need to uh, start by measuring and benchmarking well-being. So one of the most interesting things we've done the last three years um, with the basketball club that we have at our sports centre is start to benchmark the collective well-being of the members of the club. So that's an anonymised survey at the beginning of each year um, using standardised well-being questions, which are used in lots of different parts of society. Uh, that's pretty eye-opening, uh, and it gives us a way of measuring um, the well-being so at least now we can put some data behind what we're talking about instead of uh, really subjective views of well-being so when we're looking at generic questions sorry when we're looking at some of the generic questions are put in place what type of things would they ask and then when you mention it being eye-opening why 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 is that um, it's eye-opening because sometimes when you give people an opportunity to talk about their well-being, <clears throat> they'll share things that they've they've been wanting to share but haven't felt safe enough to do so. So it's quite it's eye-opening. It's quite scary actually for some coaches because well, for me included, uh, because when you start talking about well-being, start talking about potentially uh, mental health, then what are you going to get back? You're opening a door and you've got to be willing to go through that door. And you know what? It's easier for us as coaches to keep that door shut. It's it's easier. Uh, if players don't feel like they can come to us and share some of their experiences around well-being, then they won't come to us. <laughs> and if they don't come to us, we don't have to deal with it. And it's just uh, when I look back in hindsight, I think that was a feature of some of my early coaching. There's some kind of standoffishness that sometimes coaches have that I must, I've definitely had myself. And I look back and I think some of it was about protecting myself against some of those conversations and protecting myself against having to 
open up uh, to some of those those relationships and myself not being emotionally ready and having the skills to have those kind of conversations. So that's what I mean by eye-opening. It can be quite scary and it, it adds another layer to what coaching is. Like I've come to think of coaching as emotional labor. And, you know, when I started coaching in my early 20s, there's just no, I, I wouldn't even had that language. And I definitely didn't think of it. I would have thought of coaching as a tech-tech, basically. Uh, so I've evolved quite a bit. And then just to also a second part to answer your question of how do you go about it? Well, if measuring it is the first um, thing you could do, then the second thing you um, you can do is monitor it. So if we're using surveys, et cetera, to monitor before, during, after, um, excuse me, to measure before, during, after, then the monitoring in between that becomes really important. Uh, so one of the things that we've done at our club, uh, which uh, our staff have done brilliantly, is create a well-being spreadsheet. So we have 300 members now. Every single member is listed in a spreadsheet. They've all got a traffic light against them, red, yellow, green, uh, with some notes about their well-being, what have the coaches and the staff observed in their behaviours, have there been any recent changes of behaviour, have they dropped off some of their attendance for some reason, have they looked tired, uh, have we noticed any change in eating habits in and around the sessions, any little notes like that, and then that well-being spreadsheet gets reviewed once a month by our, our three staff, and they go through the list, they obviously focus on the reds, who's a new red, uh, why is that? Do we need to intervene? Do we need to phone a parent? Do we need to phone a school? Do we need to have a one-to-one -one chat? What what does that particular person need? So putting systems in place, I guess, could summarize my answer there. We need systems in place for well-being, not just a personal commitment to it, but actually systems to measure and monitor the well-being as, as you go through a season. And is that side subjective? So is that just watching the individual and seeing differences in behaviors or is this going back to questions you mentioned earlier is it going back to asking them the questions which then might flag up different answers to what they said previously yeah so it's a bit of both so we find we've had to do both because when you ask somebody a question about their well-being you're reliant you're reliant on their willingness um, to be open so you you don't know whether you're getting the full picture as a reply so talking to the participants is a big part of what we do so for example uh, we run school holiday camps and one of the great things we did this summer was the beginning of camp the first um, day um, we had one of our staff members um, work with every child that was taking part at some point in that first day spend five minutes with them and ask them um, some simple questions one of the questions they asked them was is there anything you're worried about uh, taking part here and vast majority of kids just said no that's fine but a small number actually shared something they're really worried about oh i'm worried about um, making friends because i'm actually here alone and my parents made me come <laughs> uh, i'm worried about getting hit in the face with a basketball like something as simple as that actually really affects the the subjective temporary well-being of a nine-year-old uh i'm it might be some gender-related issues. We had one response. I'm worried about which toilet I should use because this child was considered was um, unclear about what their gender is or was clear, um, but it wasn't the norm. So they were uh, they weren't sure how other children were going to respond if they used a different toilet. 
Uh, so we were able to overcome um, uh, some of those issues. So asking questions, having conversations is definitely a part of it. But if that's the only part of it, then you're solely reliant on the on the trend openness and transparency of, of the person you're speaking to. So we layer in subjective assessments, assessments, too strong a word, subjective observations of those people as well. And we work with the coaches. So if more than one adult has observed a similar change in behavior, then that would indicate that we might be onto something. So let's have another conversation with an appropriate person to ascertain whether that is something or nothing. And frequently it's nothing. Frequently, it's nothing. You know, we just we caught them on a bad day or whatever, or they were having a bad week or, you know, whatever it was. And actually, that was temporary and they've moved on. And it's fine. Uh, but sometimes it actually, it really is something. And then you, and then from there, you got to know what to do next. So what, what is that? What, what are you looking to do next if something has been a red flag? So we have a referral pathway. So we're really fortunate. We attracted some funding for a wellbeing manager. Uh, who's been brilliant. His, uh, his name's Sam Parfit. It's from um, the True Athlete Project. Uh, well worth uh, looking up. And so Sam's got a contract with us to oversee uh, well-being work. So if there is an issue, whether it be a child protection issue or a well-being issue, it can be flagged up to Sam. Uh, we've also trained our two other full-time staff members on some basic safeguarding um, uh, issues. And so Sam in particular has developed experience about how to what to do next, how to signpost somebody. Is it a conversation with a parent? Is it a conversation with a school? Is it a conversation with social services, if it's serious? Is it referral to a counsellor? And so we have a counsellor that we frequently refer to. And so there's a couple of people in the club at the moment that we're, we're paying for counselling um, for them because of that referral process. So planning that in advance. So if you're trying to embed a culture of well-being inside a sports organization, planning your, let's call it the well-being pathway in advance of doing that work or as, as part of your preparation is really important because you've got to know in advance what to do when an issue flags up. Because if you're figuring it out <laughs> once it's flagged up, you'll be, believe me, I've been there, you know, you'll be panicking of like, oh, what do we do here? I've opened a can of worms that I just don't know what to deal with. So that prior planning is is really important. And that can be as basic things as going on mental health first aid courses. Uh, and it can be as simple as sitting down as a team, as a staff team, just planning out what's going to be our referral process. Has, does anyone know how to get hold of social services in our area? What, what, what phone number do we ring? Uh, who's the appropriate um, staff member or teacher in the school that we should be contacting if there's an issue? So if we've got four feeder schools, who? what's the name and email address of the four uh teaching staff that have responsibility, safeguarding responsibility in the school, and who's the four uh, heads of PE, for example? Do we know their names? Do we know their email addresses? Stick those in a document. So it's pretty basic stuff. Like, it's nothing you wouldn't come up with yourself, but the key is planning and advance and having that kind of referral pathway ready for when something does crop up, because it'll give you confidence that you can do the right thing by this young person when it does come up. And I'm guessing that the benchmarking at the start of the year is quite an integral part of this. So you get a holistic point of view of this individual. So when we're looking at the types of questions that are within that benchmarking, like where have you sourced them from? And are you able to give some examples or some questions that allows you to clearly benchmark where yeah. they are? Sure. For anybody who's listening, if you bench, if you email, if you uh, Google, sorry, you know, well-being standardized questions, 
you'll get a bunch of responses. Then there's different scales as we use the Edinburgh Warwick scale, for example. There's uh, there's various different ways of doing it. So there are some standardized um, questions which are being validated and uh, which you can start to, um, to use effectively. Um, we also, like you said earlier, layer on some, um, some additional questions like, um, uh, what do you look for in a good coach? That's that's really that that's really helpful. Um, but yeah, I tell you, Michael, measuring well-being is really hard. Like that's one thing we've learned. Like it's really hard. Uh, also, um, one of the general challenges that sport has is isolating the difference that we make in somebody's life. So, so being able to look at a person or a group of people and isolate out if we weren't here delivering this activity their life would be different in this way. That's such a really hard question to answer. And it gets really hard with well-being because there's so many factors involved in well-being. Uh, and we could easily do all this incredible work in well-being, measure the well-being um, via surveys beginning and end of the season, and people's well-being could be getting worse. And you can look at it and go, well, hold on, where's the evidence that you're <laughs> that you're having a positive impact? And and we'd have, you know, how do you attribute change to our intervention? So it's it's actually uh, really tricky. I'll I'll tell you a story. We uh, started to um, try. We dipped our toes in this three three years ago. We were working with children in one program, and you can't be asking children, uh, you know, have you? Uh, how would you describe your mood in the last? Uh, three weeks like children don't know their mood in the last three hours let alone the last three weeks so you can't actually use these standardized questions for anybody under 14 at best so we did the ping pong balls so we had three buckets gave everyone a ping pong every kid a ping pong ball when they came in and uh, the three buckets were um, I'm happy I'm sad I'm neutral and when they came in they said choose a bucket throw it in and then we count the number of table tennis balls in each bucket, right? And that's how we get our baseline at the beginning of the session. And then we would deliver a session and we'd do the same on the way out. And you know what happened? The number of children who threw table tennis balls into the sad bucket went up. And we were like, oh man, what's going on here? <laughs> this is not what we wanted. But at the same time, the number who threw ping pong balls into the happy bucket went up as well. And the number in the middle went down. So what on earth we need to do with that <laughs> data? Uh, but um, it backed up some previous ideas about sport being an emotional activity. It actually supported the idea that the role of the coach is really, really critical because we're involving some, even in a primary school session, we're involving some element of performance, potentially some element of competition that's going to create some circumstances in which a child realizes that they can't score a basket, they can't score a goal, or they kick they kick at the goal five times and they miss every time. And we're setting up this activity and they're missing every time, and that leads to a, a certain drop in mood. So it reinforces to us the value of the coach, how critical the coach is. Coach has got to notice that we, Michael, has missed five times in a row. And see what you can do at that moment to create a, a better experience for that child. Do you have to modify the activity? Or is it a simple high five for that kid and a, and a smile? Uh, so it really reinforced for us the kind of emotional nature of sport. 
And the participants are going to leave our sessions with a range of different uh, emotions, both positive and negative, influenced heavily by the experiences that, that they've just been through. For example, how often does a ball go in a goal? Or who passed me the ball or didn't pass me the ball? That was going to be my next question. So, I mean, if, if we take an example from the top end, look at um, Deli Alley with Tottenham this season gone by. I think everyone admits it's probably not a season that he he would have enjoyed under Mourinho and probably had some challenges there. But he's come out subsequently and said that actually some of the things that Mourinho was doing was for his own benefit and that um, the longer term he thinks it will benefit him. So how do you manage that in terms of your um, approach of sometimes a coach may put a child or a young person in a challenging situation which is going to potentially put them into the sad bucket or make them frustrated or whatever that like to try and create growth kind of over the long term or improvements over the long term well it's high challenge high support so you'll probably be familiar with that research that if we have an environment of high challenge low support then you're really running the risk that if they don't meet that challenge uh, they, their mood could really drop. And that's, I think, one contributor to the player dropout in sport is the environment's uh, too challenging combined with not enough support. But if it's high challenge, high support, so you're getting uh, encouraging feedback every time you miss, you're getting a bit of technical input to help you next time, you're, you're even just getting a high five or whatever that participant needs in terms of support to meet that challenge. Now you can get the Holy Grail, which is high challenge and then achievement of that challenge. And now that's when a kid goes away buzzing, really buzzing. But if we just do high challenge, low support, then we're just leaving it to chance. And basically the early developers will probably experience some success and they'll keep going and the late developers uh, you know, the kid who's all arms and legs, uh, which is what we look for in basketball. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that kid's going to be, going to be struggling and think that they're not, they're not cut out for basketball because they didn't have the, they didn't have the support to go with the challenge. So obviously a lot of this work does boil down to what the coaches are able to do and the impact they can have. So when you're looking to provide a framework for coaches and I guess develop them in a way that both takes this into consideration but also challenges them to improve and work on their skills what what work do you currently do in that space what does that look like to try and support them in this area yes yeah, so we have a, a model called the movement model it's four blocks and three circles and that's now serves as the framework that you were just asking about there so the four blocks are traditional coaching blocks so there's the what i coach and tech tech there's the how I coach, methodologies, communication styles, feedback techniques, all of that, small side of games. There's who I coach, which is about understanding the needs of the people I coach. And then there's why I coach. So we find that that framework in particular gives coaches a way of thinking about their coaching, which is uh, balanced and also in the right order. So if I think back to my own experience, when I was thinking about and planning my coaching, I would always start with what. And 
we're all attracted if we love our sport we're all attracted to that we're naturally attracted to the tech tech i mean i love a tech tech conversation as much as anybody you know <laughs> you, you know an hour an hour can disappear very happily <laughs> talking about that um maybe we base our what on who maybe we base it on physical capacities of our players skill levels at certain positions so if we've got fast athletes we might play a pressing style for example but in my experience with coaches we don't go far enough with understanding um, who i coach so going beyond the, the physical and the skill attributes thinking about uh, the context that those um, participants come from what are they facing in their daily lives what are they going back to after our training sessions and what needs does that generate what human needs not not athlete needs what human needs does that generate for example um do they have a strong need for connection do they have a strong need for for example affiliation with um uh, with adult men uh if you dig into that detail quite a bit then that can really affect and influence your choice of what so my argument is we should start by thinking about analyzing deeply who we coach that'll identify some needs amongst those coach those participants that informs why we coach so the why we coach serves the who and that gives us a really solid foundation then we add the what onto that and then given what we want to coach how do we want to coach it so for me the order is who do I coach, then it's why do I coach, then it's what do I coach, and finally it's how I coach. So those four blocks are kind of the cornerstones of our, of our framework. And if we guide coaches through a process of understanding who they coach and why they coach, then the what becomes quite a bit clearer. We find that there's a lot more clarity and a lot more consistency of, of approaches uh, as well. Where, it, where there's a problem is when it goes backwards you know in basketball terms there's a high level team that runs this kind of attacking pattern that looks awesome on youtube why don't i try that with my under 18 team <laughs> you know which and i've been there believe me i say that because i've absolutely been there you know watching the olympics and thinking i really like how argentina play you know well, now that would work uh you know we've all, we've all been there uh and then the second part of the framework is our is our three circles which describes the impact that we want to make so we start with the coach that's the smaller circle so really working with coaches to understand what their strengths are taking a real strengths-based approach there helping them to understand what uh, causes them stress as well uh, helping them put strategies in place to protect their own well-being so having an impact on the coach is the first circle and if we do some positive work in that area that enables the coach or expands their capacity to then have an impact on the players well, the second circle outside and we think of the ripple effect and we've just dropped a pebble in a pond well that first circle that first ripple was the coach the second ripple is the players stroke team and particularly um, the level of care within the team environment is something we're really interested in and then if that's all headed in the right direction then that the ripples start to expand further into the community from there and then out into broader society so if you think of those three circles sitting on top of four blocks, that's essentially the framework or the model that we use to think about and develop coaching.
And is there any, um, I guess, practical examples that you had of someone who's completely flipped their approach for the better? That someone came in and was speaking to you guys all around tech tech and going, yeah, I want to do this, I want to do that. And actually this approach has really allowed you to see a development in them, but also, I guess, the development in the team and the relationship that individuals got with the team, et cetera. Uh, no, don't have any examples of people flipping like that because I'm not in the business of helping that person flip. Like, that's too hard. Like, that person has to have some self-awareness first. Now, if the person has been tech-tech but is interested in something else, is starting to realize that that's not the be-all and end-all of coaching and is curious and wants to explore further, then we can definitely help that coach. But the coach who's exclusively focused on tech-tech, uh, my experience frequently correlates with the coach who's um, quite interested in competition and performance, and frequently that also correlates with a kind of coach-centered approach and maybe their identity tied up in their coaching. Uh, so those coaches in that kind of category uh, for me, they're laggards, you know, in the adoption curve, they're not the early adopters of, of change in the coaching system. They're, they're, the, they're going to be the last coaches to change. And if they don't recognize that there's some issues and some problems there, then I need to wait until they do. Maybe I can ask some questions, some open questions, which might stimulate that, but I've got to be really, that's really tricky and you have to be careful because you can come across as condescending there really easily. Um, and who am I to? tell them that they're or even lead them towards a point to suggest their coaching is not quite appropriate you know in many cases they might be if they're focused on competition they probably, probably think they're a better coach than i am so i've got i don't i don't take that approach so yeah i've kind of rejected your question there mate no apologies no uh, it's fine I, it's it's interesting because I, I would have thought that they'd be the ones you'd want to challenge so that they'd be the ones that you would say listen, if you adopt this framework, it may help you have a better connection with your athletes and then therefore you may succeed even further with whatever your aims are. But it seems like actually you need them to be somewhere along the path before you can actually guide them in a different direction. Yeah, I've learned this from experience. So I work with a bunch of sports professionals um, here in Scotland. So um, I support Sports Scotland to um, to train professionals in the in the sporting sector in, uh, in Scotland. So those people that are working with coaches, that are working with clubs and, and growing grassroots sport in Scotland. And our experience there is you have to work with the willing. So for anyone listening, if you're interested in cultural change, if you Google the adoption curve, you'll get a visual representation of what I mean. Uh, the people that are the hardest to change, they're the laggards, they're the late majority, they're the last people that are going to change. And they will only change when we've gone past the tipping point. And the tipping point is when the culture shifts. So if you define culture as people like us do things like this, then what we our approach is people that want to be like us, what I, I don't mean that, hopefully I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but want to adopt this approach, want to join our tribe of people that are using sport for change. Uh, if those people want to join us, then they're going to be attracted to us in the first instance. So what we're looking for is the early adopters. So you, Michael, might be an early adopter in 
Southampton, right? So I wouldn't go into Southampton Football Club and and go straight up to the hardest nose coach there, the, the one with the clipboard and the and the and the whistle who's shouting at the kids and try to change that coach. No, no way. <laughs> I'd find someone like you, uh, who's curious, obviously interested, open to ideas, cultivate a relationship with you, and then enable you to then spread that idea, equip you with some language and some ideas to spread that change to the next person who you think's open to it. And then the next and then they go to the next person. And now we're starting to spread, but we're spreading in a way that's just going to the early adopters. And then as we shift through the adoption curve, we get enough people behaving in a certain way. Then that coach that we're describing, that coach is now the odd one out. And when a person is the odd one out, when they see that the culture around them is different and change, they've got two choices. They either leave that culture, that environment, and go somewhere else where they feel more comfortable, or they change along with it. So once you get past that midpoint of cultural change, that's when the laggards will start to change. So that's why I don't focus on those people when I'm trying to create change. It's not that I have anything against them, far from it. And I really enjoy the challenge of, of talking to people like that. Um, but I'm not going in there trying to convince them of anything. I'm working with the people who are already open-minded, receptive to these kind of ideas and helping equip them to go get the next person and then helping equip that person to go get the next person after that. So I've just got this curve up um, and I'll I'll make sure that I put it out when I put the podcast up because I think it would be good for people to see. So I guess the, the question for me off the back of that, and a lot of people would have been in this situation, both in a sporting context and probably in a working context, potentially in personal life as well, is you, you've got 75 to 80% of the room on board with what you want to do, but you've got that 20%, be it five people, 10 people, two people, where it is, that still at the moment are reluctant to shift across. Have you got any specific strategies you have to try and get people on board with this? So in this coaching context, if you're working in a club and you're coming in and putting these practices in play and go, actually, we're going to take into consideration the language we're using with the players. We're going to look at the well, well-being of the players. We're going to make sure we focus on the who and work our way down, down the spectrum from there. And we've still got a couple of coaches that want to focus on tech tap first and then they're going to switch. Have you got any particular strategies to use to try and help these people at the start of that journey when you're in the majority? Yeah, use their strengths. So if they're tech tap focused, they're interested in that. They're probably quite analytical as a result of that, if, especially if they're tactically focused. They're probably quite strategic thinkers, probably quite quite good at analyzing a picture that they, they see in front of them. So those are strengths. So start with tech-tech conversations, but then bleed it into the other areas. So I mentioned earlier the connection between what I coach and who I coach. So you could go into that conversation discussing what we coach. Well, why are you using that tactic? Why, why are you, um, oh, let's use football. I'm going to expose my ignorance here. But like, why are you, what is it, 5-4-1, right? Why, why are you five defenders? Oh, tell me about that. Oh, well, it's because, um, you know, we keep getting beaten <laughs> by all these teams. Southampton are kicking our butts, you know. They've got too much talent. So we go 5-4-1 to, uh, to limit the damage. Or I think that gives us the best chance to win. Ah, okay. What would happen if we won? Um, well, we'd go up the table. What would be good about that? Uh, well, 
the the players would love it. Okay, which players would love it? Um, well, or who would love it the most? Who would who would gain the most from that? Well, probably the guys who are scoring. Uh, certainly the eleven on the pitch. All right, who might not? Who would like that the least? Uh, well, maybe the guys on the bench who aren't getting a chance to play. Maybe the attacking player who's isolated up front. All right, what do you think that person's experience is? Is there any unintended negative side side consequences of of this approach? And maybe you can draw out a conversation that starts to dig into who who they coach. So you've gone in through the root of what they coach five four one, but you've steered the conversation towards who they coach in an attempt to develop empathy, more empathy to those people that they coach, and in particular the ones that aren't directly benefiting from you know from from the results or from being in the team uh what might be the unintended negative consequences of playing this system and having those attacking players on the bench for the whole season um well next season we might they might leave we might not have the attackers we need next season oh do you want to win next season yeah i do want to win next season okay so is there what's the balance what do you think is the right balance here if we want to win a game next season Oh, I'm not too sure. Okay, cool. I'll leave it with you. Let's have a chat again tomorrow. So, you know, that's just that's just the use of questioning, isn't it? It's that's just the use. Of, I don't know guided discovery. I don't, I don't know the the technical terms, but you got to be careful with that though, because you know there's nothing worse than a coach who sees you know see sees straight through that <laughs> that questioning approach you know there's nothing two coaches talking to each other asking asking questions and never answering answering any of them um but the route in is through the tech tech it's through their strengths it's through what they're interested in and yeah i think i think that's a really interesting point and you know trying to maybe shift the focus from immediate and maybe long term and that could be a selling point and go okay we want if if winning is important, we want sustained winning. So yeah. how are we going to make winning sustainable? And that might be that actually we're going to upskill all the individuals rather than just this eleven, or we're going to upskill everyone because we're going to give them a little bit more opportunity to lead. Because actually, longer term, we we know that if they can take care of themselves, that saves your energy, etc. I guess the challenge for me, and this is something that I'm struggling with just generically at the moment, is how this transfers to the top end so you look at the top end sport which at times can be i think volatile is a relatively nice word for it um in terms of you know board members and the way that they act right the way down to teammates and the way that they get at one another so how do you go around captivating a culture in your maybe your the younger part of your club and giving people the tools to cope if they go in that environment. Because what sometimes happens, and I, I see it a lot in different sports, is players progress through this pathway where there's lots of good intention work going on. They're supported. They're challenged in different ways appropriately. And then they get to the first team and all of a sudden it becomes very hostile. One mistake and you're out for lack of a better things, teacups going everywhere if it's the 1980s football <laughs> analogy. So how do you go around preparing individuals to make that jump with the frameworks you can put in prior? Should you be preparing individuals to make that jump, Michael? Or should you be advising them to go somewhere else where they're going to be 
treated with respect and dignity? I would say in a perfect world, you would say, yeah, go to somewhere where, you know, you're treated in a, in a better context. I 100% agree with that. Rightly or wrongly, there seems to be at the top level sport at times, people do let it run away with them. Um, you look at, yeah. yeah, you look at gymnastics with all the things that's come out of there recently. England cricket team historically, when they said under Andrew Flowers, you look at some of the rugby stuff. I think all over performance sport, I don't think there's a sport that's outside of it, which at times does get very hostile. So I guess it's just, you want to, and this is just from my opinion, you want to provide them with a framework to be able to cope with it whilst maybe looking for somewhere else to go. If if it was my child, I'd be like, I want to put you in a position where you can cope for a year or 18 months to then try and find somewhere that's a better cultural fit for you. But I think if you go, if you put them into that context without any framework or support, that could potentially damage them more longer term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's what I, I do. Yeah. I mean, I totally, I totally get your question, mate. I, re I really do. Um, but I think in our sporting culture, in our coaching conversations, we need to actually push back against that. That the solution there is not to prepare the young person for upcoming abuse. Like that, that's not the solution. <laughs> the solution is that that abuse shouldn't be there. Uh, and it's not good enough to say, well, that's somebody else's responsibility. That said, I also totally get that you have to operate within your sphere of influence and certainly within your circle of control. And there's only so much you can do. And if you're in a job, for example, and you maybe you got a baby at home and you can't just be like chucking your toys figuratively out of the pram and quitting your job, right? Um, so I, yeah, I get the realities of that. Uh, trying to influence up is a, is a complicated and difficult skill. And that exists in all organizations, all reasonable size organizations. It doesn't matter if you work in a bank or a football club, influencing up is a, is a really significant change management skill. Um, and people go on courses and do degrees just to try to figure that, you know, read a, you could read a book a week and still struggle with, um, you know, with that area. And one of the interesting things I think we've responded with is the growth mindset. And so I find it really interesting how sport like just seized on that growth mindset. It was like, oh yeah, this is us. Like this can help. And I can see, absolutely see the value in the growth mindset, but I have a bit of an issue with it too, which I think it just, we run the risk of just creating a better soldier, like somebody who's just more resilient and better able to cope with the inappropriate behaviors of the leaders around them. When actually what we should be doing is challenging the behaviors of those leaders rather than equipping young people to be more resilient when they go into those tough environments. What would happen if collectively we just put a stop to those kind of environments? And I totally get that that's much easier said than done, but I don't want this topic to pass without me challenging like the culture of, of, um, of preparing players for difficult, you know, difficult situations ahead. So it's, 
really, really difficult. Uh, one thing that we shouldn't do, in my opinion, is treat them tough now so that they can get used to it for later on. Like, because that just, if you think about it, that just perpetuates the culture, right? That's actually spreads um, the, cult, the culture down. Um, giving them mental models to equip themselves um, in those situations, I think is important. Identity, again, we come back to the beginning of our conversation. If that young person, that 18 year old, is trying to break into the first team, uh, if sport and being an athlete, being a player is their identity, and then that uh, first team coach takes that identity or challenges that, takes it away from them, sits them on the bench and, and yells at them all the time, then they're going to really struggle. So as academy or youth coaches, if we've been cultivating a broad identity, working with the families to cultivate a broad identity, then at least when that young person goes into the more volatile situation, they've got um, frameworks, they've got models, they've got support structures around them that they're, they're family are engaged in that so the family are not perpetuating the myth of the of that athlete identity as well they can come back to you as the academy coach and at the very least they've got a support network around them that can mitigate um, some of this, the, the circumstances they're in and then we just hope that they can hang in long enough <laughs> until they crack the first team and and then some poor other young person gets next in line and do you think the challenges, I guess, in, in sport compared to maybe some other working environments is that ultimately what sports teams are judged on is whether they win on a Saturday or lose on a Saturday. So the methods between that probably aren't questioned as much as they maybe should be. If you're winning every week, it doesn't matter if you're yelling and shouting at your players well because they're winning. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And equally if you're losing every week, but actually everyone in your building is, you know, relatively well looked after, they feel supported, they feel valued. Again, there's not an emphasis placed on that maybe at a board level or owner level because you're losing every week. That doesn't do me any good. It doesn't do the fans any good. So do you think that there needs to be, I guess, a change in, in, in the descriptors around what success actually looks like for top level athletes and top level sport and it can't just be what happens on a Saturday afternoon so this conversation mirrors what's been happening in the corporate world for a couple of decades now which is the debate of profit versus purpose so is it only is the corporation's sole responsibility to make profit and therefore maximize shareholder value like, is that how corporations make contribution to society? Or um, should they also measure profit alongside people and alongside planet? So that triple bottom line, as it's referred to, is a way of measuring the success of, of uh, organizations. So, okay, we're making a profit, but also alongside that, what impact are we having on our people inside the organization first? And then also the people who engage with our organization on the outside. And then what's our environmental impact and sustainability as well. And what enlightened companies are realizing is that that broader sustainability, that way of looking after people retains talent, which leads to greater profit in the future. Uh, having um, sustainable environmental practices can lead to increased profit because more and more consumers are making decisions based on uh, environmental impact amongst other factors. 
So the real enlightened corporations are realizing that those three things go together and ultimately the way you look after people and planet contributes to profit. So I wonder what's happening in the best elite sports organizations, because I think there's a parallel there. Are they recognizing that if they look after people while also emphasizing performance, uh, they can actually retain that talent. They can retain the best backroom staff, the best coaches. Uh, they can retain the best youth players who maybe want to go away and leave, go to another club um, to get minutes. Um, but actually, if they're really happy in the environment they're in, would they stay and develop further? Um, because as you know, in football in particular, developing homegrown talent is the cheapest way <laughs> to get talent, right? rather than buying somebody else's home homegrown talent. So there's actually compelling business and performance reasons to, to look after people. Uh, and the, the I think the best and, and um, highest level organizations are doing that. And it's connected to your planning horizon. If you've got a, that's the big, big problem with football clubs is the planning horizon is so short. It happens in a lot of professional sport. Those organizations with short-term planning horizons that they don't perform well over time unless they have some sort of structural advantage, which just means they can pump cash into it. If you're, well, I was about to say Barcelona, but that's uh, <laughs> that's not working now, is it? Uh, if you're Man City or Real Madrid and you could just throw cash at things, well, I'm afraid that's, I've got no answer for that, mate. That's that's just a different ball game or, um, altogether. Um, but for the 99% of professional organizations that can't just keep throwing money at things, uh, they can realize that looking after people will actually improve their performance over time if they have a long-term planning horizon. Easier said than done, though. So I think this brings us on to um, something we've just discussed prior a little bit at the start of this conversation, is how this can affect the wider community. So when we're looking at all the work you're doing at Movement and you know, you're trying to inform better practice from the coaches and it being able to create a good environment for people within that particular setup, how does that then transfer to wider communities? What effects are we seeing and what effects can we have you know, when we disperse from our clo closed in-net group into the, the wider, wider community? Well, sport's got a unique opportunity to um, teach young people in particular the value of giving back, of giving to others. Rugby's quite good at this, uh, about it being a culture of, like you can't hide on, on a rugby field if somebody's not working for the team, then you, you, know, you soon find, find out about that. So there's a way of coaching. If we coach in a way that cultivates that um, concept of giving to others, also, if we coach in a way that empowers the players, so develops decision-making, then they can go out into the community equipped with the capacity to make decisions about all the different, um, shall we say, pools of their time and energy that they would have out there, and also a willingness to give back. Then you're cultivating a kind of social awareness, which can lead to, um, to community impact. If, on the other hand, we're totally focused on winning, totally focused on them as athletes are not people then we basically create selfish people and they aren't going to go out in, into the into the community and have an impact uh on a practical note there's loads and loads of examples in sport of community outreach programs which do really significant work 
you know, rugby league clubs that do work with um, older fans um, suffering from dementia and bring them back to the back to the stadium and, and showing them trophies, you know, trophies from 1961 and, and all that. Uh, or we could go on and on. Employability programs in football and rugby, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Anti-social behaviour initiatives from football. So we, you know, we can be really deliberate about um, using sport as a hook um, to improve the lives of people in our communities. But we can also, just within our coaching, we can coach in a way that creates the kind of behaviours that lead to social cohesion. Um, but we've got to be deliberate about it. I guess that's the kind of gold standard for you guys and the work that you're trying to do, which is obviously you're trying to work with, with the coaches to maybe think about the way that they act, how are they supporting the individual and then how are they improving them, hopefully providing all those players and people in that coach's care with the ability to go and spread that and hopefully provide, as you said, their social cohesion. That's kind of your gold standard of what we're looking for. Yeah, that's that's the holy grail. Uh, it's hard to achieve. You don't just click your fingers and, and do that. Uh, but it's it's really difficult for a coach um, to achieve that. But if they're consistent, they've got a long term planning horizon, and they, and they create the and a, a climate of care, and then they can really have a big, really big impact on uh, on, on communities. It's worth noting too that in our in our experience, we're not trying to push a methodology on people. Uh, that just doesn't work. Like there are some awesome coaching methodologies out there. We, we, you know, we've all we're members of websites and we've all read books about particular ways of doing things, feedback techniques, or you know, whatever it is, uh, teaching techniques. And some of that stuff I read and watch, I'm like, oh my word, that is awesome. Uh, but it's often particular methods that somebody's developed through their own experience, and then they're teaching other people that that method. I, I, totally see the value in that we don't do that our approach is a little, a little bit different i really believe that coaches want to help people and okay there's a small number of coaches who okay let's just put them in the egomaniac category uh, but they are really they are actually quite small um, that proportion 95 let's call it 99 percent of coaches got into it to help people now we lose sight of that sometimes and our sporting culture and our competition systems don't always encourage us to hold on to that. Why? But we all got in it to help people in some capacity. We want to be a difference maker um, for the people we coach. And I really believe that, that coaches fundamentally, if you got down to it, uh, really do want to help people. Just think quite a few of us forget or we, or we forget for 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, and lose sight of that for 10 minutes. And then behave in a way that uh, that later on we're like, oh, I hope, you know, you're telling it to your wife when you get home, and like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Uh, we've all, I've been there. I've, I've absolutely been there. It's easy to lose sight of the reason why you got involved in, uh, in coaching in the first place. So what we do is is based on the strengths of coaches, based on a belief that they want to be difference makers, based on a belief that they have they have strengths, and so we. Uh, in particular, help them with their plan do review process, and we just find that the more coaches reflect and review, the more open they become to new to new learning. And usually, you just open a door, and the coach just goes through the door and says, "See you later," and 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 they control their own learning from from that point. But to bring it back to something really practical, 
it's the regular review and reflection after sessions, after coaching and open questions um, that really leads to that kind of deeper understanding, which enables people to, to reconnect with why they coach, why they started coaching in the first place. And so on that front, obviously, some, some people listening to this might work in pairs or in a group, if they're, they're fortunate enough to have a group of people there, or some might be by themselves and they might be taking their son or daughter's team and they're, you know, they're there as a parent to help out and, or, or what that looks like. What's, what are some of the questions that they could ask themselves to, I guess, increase that reflective practice? and hopefully get them to start leaning in, in the right directions or, you know, trying to improve the experience of people within their care. So what challenges are being faced by the people I coach? Uh, practical example, who's injured at the moment? Take a note of who's injured, uh, who's facing some personal challenges, who's facing some educational challenges at school. So just, that sounds really simple, doesn't it? And people will listen to this, we go, oh yeah, that's simple. But Take a note of every at every session. Write down your thoughts on on who is facing what challenges right now. Little scribbles at the bottom of your practice plan. Second thing, uh, question we can ask ourselves is who do who do I need to connect with? And then follow up. What's my messaging? Uh, in my experience in the past, uh, I only can see this now in hindsight. I avoided difficult conversations with players because uh, it's quite hard, <laughs> basically, uh, especially when I've coached adults. Uh, and so when I look back, I've actually negatively affected my own enjoyment of coaching because I've avoided uh, some of those difficult conversations where if I've just connected with people earlier, uh, and done it deliberately and then planned it, I could have saved that person and myself a whole bunch of negative emotions and I could have enjoyed my coaching much more. So now, as a result of planning my connections, like I literally write down like three people I'm going to connect with at every session and a question I might ask them or a message I might have for them. That can be really simple. It can be really, really simple. Some of them would be difficult. Like, you could, okay, Michael, noticed you had conflict with uh with alan and in, in that game on on saturday you know okay unpack that for me what were you experiencing right then or you know michael i subbed you out and you were pretty damn rude to me what were you thinking in, in that moment so some of those could be really challenging or hey i've noticed some changes in your behavior i've noticed some scratches on your arms what's going on what's up with you how are you doing and then there's other connection conversations you can have which are just like hey what's up what do you uh you know university's about to start hey what are you what are you studying this year or what what are your plans for the, what are your plans for the future um so asking questions about connection uh and our planning is is really useful and i'll i'll stop boring you uh quite soon i'll just say one little one little story of practical thing um that we do at the end of every session now we spend three minutes cooling down at the end of every training session and uh, the players get into pairs with somebody who they don't often talk to. So not one of the people they would maybe go for, you know, go home, you know, walk home with or go for a beer with or go for coffee with. Uh, and we talk about anything other than sport for three minutes. And we just walk up and down for our cool down. Sometimes we give them a theme. 
So uh, last night, um, so I, I'm coaching with Alan this year, um, who mentioned at the start of the podcast, and and uh, Alan said to the group, okay, walking, cool down, pair up, what should we talk about? And one of the players, there was a pause, and then one of the players said, goals. What are your goals? Now I was like, okay, all right, three minutes, talk with somebody else. What are your goals at the moment? What are your aspirations for the future? And I was paired up with a, with a player uh, much taller than me, so I was looking up the whole time. And, and, uh, and he was talking about, um, his career. He's a first year graduate. Uh, lots of his friends have had internships cancelled. Uh, he's got a job, but he's not particularly enjoying it, but he's hanging on to it because he's like, I got to get through this year, get some experience under my belt because I feel fortunate to get a job. And then my goal is to just get through this year, um, you know, navigating this job that I don't particularly enjoy, but it's okay for my career. And then, you know, a year or two from now, my goal is to get the job I want. So I just learned something about that person. I also learned that if that person comes to training next time, is looking a bit tired and a bit frustrated. Oh, maybe it's because just had a rough day at work. And maybe I could slide up your long side and go, "Hey, how was work today?" And you go, "Oh, well, <laughs> my boss is an idiot," and I've you know I've got the basis for empathy. So that three minute cool down, talk about anything other than sport, such a simple thing. Uh, and doesn't doesn't impact on your training session. You're not spending any less time working on your corners, you know. Uh, but you can add that connection to your environment pretty easily. I know, um, and from personal experience, is when I used to play, we'd do a big lap together, kind of as just as a warm up, and it's a great way just to have a chat and catch up with people prior to the session starting. So I find that quite a lot. I know that we. Um, we say our kids shouldn't just run around a field or anything. And I do understand that. But actually, sometimes if the purpose is to let them have a chat, to let them catch up about, you know, what they did at school today or why they don't like so-and-so for giving them a detention or whatever that is, there is a purpose behind it. There is a, a social element to it that might actually support one another. So I think that, yeah, people can be can be clever and can be purposeful with that type of stuff. Um, yeah, I'll so many examples like any warm-up activity that involves the players in contact with each other they seem to really enjoy um particularly young men because there's they're scared of that they're in this masculine culture where you can't hug your friend or maybe your closest friends maybe but not like the guy that you just see a couple of times a week or whatever so we do warm-up activities with contact so which is fun stuff like you got to stand on one foot opposite another person and you've got to uh, you're allowed to push each other with one finger, right? So you're trying to you're trying to push the other person off balance uh, with one finger, and there's this contact, and the players just they're falling over, them, literally falling over themselves, laughing, you know. And meanwhile, they're working on their, you know, the sports scientists would call that what's that proprioception? Yeah, I call proprioception. It, right, yeah. I, I call I call it balance. You know. <laughs> Um, so perfect. So obviously this is close to the, a lot of time that we gave. So I, from my perspective, it may be challenging, but who's the most um, in this space that you're working in? Who's the most influ influential coach or player you've worked with in this area and why? That's the question. I'm going to give you an answer of somebody who's not a household name because I, I don't want to. I don't want to bring up all sorts of preconceptions people people might have. Uh, this guy here in Edinburgh, uh, actually spoke to him a couple of hours ago, Doogie Samuels, head coach, Spartans, uh, men's team, uh, in Edinburgh. 
semi-professional team uh, connected to a, a charity that he founded as well. Uh, they own their own facility, which they uh, which they built um, from financing, which they've since paid back. Uh, awesome business model, awesome impact model, all based around uh, the quality of conversations we can have with people. So that, that's Doobie's purpose. How can I have the highest possible convers quality conversations with people? That's how he defines success. That's what drives him. He loves talking, which helps. But he's a good listener as well. He's all like he simplified coaching down to one thing: the quality of the conversations I have with people. Perfect. So, for people that want to find out a little bit more information about you guys and the work that you're doing, where can they go? What can they log in? Where can they find you? Yeah, thanks, Michael. So, our website is movementsports.com. We we uh, we spell movement M V M T. So mvmtsports.com, jump on our website. Uh, you can get us on socials as well if you search for that. Uh, our products are available on our website, also on, on Amazon. Uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch. I tell you what, I love getting conversations. I love starting conversations with coaches. My colleague, Alan, uh, you mentioned earlier, he's even bit, he's even worse than me. Uh, he's, he loves a good chat or hit me up on Twitter or Alan if you, if you know him and you want to get in touch. And jump on our website and yeah feel free to stay in touch perfect listen really appreciate your time and hopefully you can catch up again soon thanks michael Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.